All right, welcome everybody to Finding Truth. Tonight, we're gonna to be talking about the Exodus and the data and how do we uh, basically decide whether um, the data fits better, an early date or a later date. Uh, so with you guys, uh, I'm with you with you tonight. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation. I'm gonna have Michael Jones, who goes by the name Inspiring Philosophy. He has a huge YouTube channel. Uh, if you guys don't know who he is, uh, go ahead and subscribe to his channel. But most most of the people that are here are probably because of him and Dr. Falk. So uh, I really appreciate the fact that you guys are here. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Uh, Michael, why don't you go ahead and introduce uh, your ministry, the things that you have been doing, uh, and anything like that. Yeah, my name is Michael Jones. I run Inspiring Philosophy. I do a bunch of different animated videos on my channel. Currently finishing up a series on Old Testament uh, law that uh, John Walton and Mark Chevalis have been helping me with. And the final video on that should come out tomorrow. So that's what I've been working on lately. All right, Dr. Falk. Uh, well, I'm a classically trained academic. Um, I went through the traditional process of uh, earning a PhD. I do a channel called Ancient Egypt and the Bible that looks at issues on ancient Egypt as it relates to the Bible. Um, I teach, I write books, I write peer-reviewed articles, I do what academics normally do. All right, awesome. So um, I guess I have two initial questions basically just to um, kind of like get the conversation started. And one of them will be, what do we mean by evidence, uh, Michael? So yeah, when we're talking about evidence for the exodus of Egypt, there, there's a lot of skeptics online who say there's no evidence. And then you ask them what they mean by evidence and they don't really give a good definition. Uh, typically, you'll, if you get an answer, you'll get like, well, it should be mentioned somewhere in the hieroglyphic inscriptions. Uh, it should be mentioned somewhere in Egypt, something of that nature. Uh, that's really not necessarily, I mean, that'd be great, but that's probably never going to happen. Uh, <laughs> Egypt is not going to mention, they're not doing history in their hieroglyphic, hieroglyphics. Uh, they're, they're painting a glorified picture of themselves. They're doing a lot of other things, praising their gods, that kind of thing. So when we're talking about evidence for the Exodus, a lot of it can be circumstantial. Uh, we want archaeological sites that would have been abandoned uh, by Semites. Uh, there's got to be evidence of uh, destruction at Jericho and Canaan uh, for the conquest. Same with places like Hazor. Uh, a good piece of evidence is a, is a material culture change that even you know scholars like Deaver or Finkelstein will talk about actually happened in Canaan. Uh, so that would be very good evidence. Also, another field of evidence, uh, type of evidence would be internal evidence. Does, does the evidence within the Pentateuch match uh, Egyptian themes? I mean, if you're writing and making stuff up thousands of years later, hundreds of years later, you're going to have a hard time mimicking stuff without like internet or modern libraries, uh, like language, customs, names, and whatnot. So should there, there also needs to be internal evidence in the Torah that shows it matches Egyptian origin. All right, and Dr. Falk, for you, um, what do we mean by an early date and uh, late date? Okay, the early date is classically defined as um, the calculation of the date of the Exodus based upon the 480 years found in 1 Kings 6.1. And that typically results in a date of around 1446 BC. Now, the late date comes to us actually from antiquity uh, through calculations done by Rabbi Hanasi in the 4th century AD. And those calculations end up 
having the exodus at around uh, thir roughly 1350-1365 uh, BC. So that's what it roughly means. So think early when you see early date, think 1446. When you see late date, you think thir roughly 1350. Okay. Um, so, Michael, I wanted to ask you, because you, you, you made a, uh, a YouTube video about, you know, the exodus and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. What? Why did you initially reject the late date uh, of the exodus? So, yeah, there's, there's a long story there. I'll try to shorten it. Uh, so initially, I think the first thing that actually got me interested in the archaeology of the Exodus, which will make uh, Dr. Falk's blood boil, which would be patterns of evidence, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but I mean, like I was mostly doing New Testament stuff at the time. I was mostly doing uh, philosophy at the time. I still am, but I just did, I wouldn't really get too much into the Old Testament. So when I saw patterns of evidence, I was like, you know, maybe there's maybe there's something there. And then there wasn't because it's just it's just filled with so many problems. But I still was kind of interested in the Exodus. So I think after I read Kenneth Kitchen and Hoffmeyer, and I was like, I was a little disappointed uh, because they don't really mention a lot of archaeological evidence. They focus more on like there's good correlations in the Pentateuch for an, an Egyptian origin, which is great. But I mean that doesn't really pinpoint to a Ramesses, uh, a Ramesses the second necessarily. I mean there are some, but it's not. It's not super strong, I guess you could say. So you come away from watching Patterns of Evidence and you hear all these archaeologists saying there's no evidence for an exodus and everyone wants to date it to Ramesses. You get the impression, well, and then you read Kitchen in Hoffmeyer and they don't really mention like on the ground stuff like evidence at Avaris or whatnot. And you get the impression that, well, there's just not a lot of good evidence for there. So I kept looking and I ended up in t uh, talking with, I think, some people in some uh, Facebook groups about the early date, and they offered what appeared to be pretty good evidence at the time. So you're put with this sort of scenario. You watch patterns of evidence. There's no they, a bunch of these archaeologists saying there's no evidence. You read Hoffmeyer and Kitchen, who ascribe to the late date, and they don't really mention the on-the-ground evidence. Then you come to early day proponents, and they're offering what looks to be like much better evidence. So that's what just started pulling me in that direction. And it wasn't until I got to talk with Dr. Falk that I realized that a lot of that was really flimsy. Uh, and there's a lot, there's actually is archeological evidence for the late date. It's just a shame that I didn't come across it up until I spoke with Dr. Falk. I, if I could. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you can only see uh, me right now. <laughs> yeah, you can only see me. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I think one of the problems we deal with when we talk about uh, evidence for the Exodus is what we're dealing with here is sort of an effect of uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect, where um, those who are um, most sure are the least competent, whereas those who are more competent tend to be less sure, less circumspect, or more circumspect about the, the nature of the evidence. So when you read a, a, a source like Kitchen or Hoffmeyer, those two men have been trained in the academy. They have been trained to be circumspect. That means they'll never say that something is. They'll just say something may be, something is likely, something is good possibilities. So you get this circumspection all the way through academic writing because nobody wants to be pinned down to be said, it is this. 
So anytime you're going to get, get um, academic writing, you're going to find in academic writing that sort of couching in maybes, would-bes. And, and, and to the lay reader, it seems pretty flimsy, and I'll, I'll admit that, because all academic writing is done in this way. But with the, with the opposite, where you have incompetent people trying to make evidence, bad evidence look good, they'll just say, oh, yeah, it's this. They have no problem stating it, it in absolute terms. So mm -hmm. I think sometimes academics struggle to get their message out to, say, um, less read audiences because they are trying to still bridge that 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 they're trying to bridge that gap between how we talk in the academy and what people understand and it's a difficult transition to make few academics are successful at doing it okay so um i, I guess one of the questions that i had in this in terms of what um um, Michael was saying about the archaeological evidence. How much does that, does that play when we make a case for the exodus? I think it's probably the bulk of the evidence. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're talking about the internal evidence of the Bible or the external evidence of, say, archaeological digs. It's still going to be archaeology in either case. In the case of the internal evidence, you're going to be looking at what does the archaeology inform us about the consistency of the biblical account. In the same way, the external evidence is still going to be archaeological evidence, whether that is archaeological evidence in texts or archaeological evidence in digs. It is going to be stuff that's recovered through archaeology that informs us about, again, the, the Exodus account. So it's almost all going to be archaeological evidence, one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Michael, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think that's a good point. The archaeological evidence needs to be primary. And I think, you know, like, that's one of the things I think that... Uh... So recently I read, I was reading through Five Views of the Exodus. It's a book that just came out. And you have, like, people presenting five different views. So Scott Stripling prevents the early date, and James Hoffmeyer prevents the late, presents the late date. Stripling, to the layman reading this, I came away from this book going, like, you know, if a layman were to pick this book up, they're going to agree with Stripling probably more than Hoffmeyer, unfortunately. And that's be that is because Stripling does a pretty good case talking about a wealth of archaeological data that he thinks supports his position. Uh, he goes through like the abandonment of, of Avaris. He talks about Jericho. And then you get to Hoffmeyer and you're hoping to see some good evidence for like the late date. But he, he doesn't really talk about like the abandonment of Avaris. He yeah. doesn't really talk about Jericho. And so you see a lot of evidence that he uses that could be used for later early dates. And that's just a little disappointing, I think. And I like, for example, Dr. Falk in his book, he presents more archaeological evidence that supports the late date that cannot uh, be used for just the early date. And so that's just unfortunately missing with a lot of late date proponents. And so and I, I'm really grateful for Dr. Falk to sort of filling in that gap in a lot of ways. Well, you have to understand, too, is some of, a lot of this is my, my particular training that allows me to fill this gap, um, both with, with, with Kitchen and with most of the late-bait proponents. They started out in the field as academics. Mm -hmm. you know, they, were, they went from high school right into university and right into the academy. 
So they've they their world is the academy. Right. So they are going to engage everything like the academy. I got my PhD really late in life. I mean, I earned my PhD when I was 45. So I had this huge period where I was laity. So I have a sensitivity for what is much more compelling to the lay reader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's really useful and helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I never, I, I never expected, I was, I was one of these guys who <laughs> never expected to go into the Academy. I mean, I mean, I spent most of my career as a computer engineer. And that's where you met your good friend, Douglas Petrovich. Well, I met my good friend Douglas Petrovich at the University of Toronto, where we had classes together. I love bringing up that because he hates he hates that fact because, because he loves telling people he's the only one in the world that he that was been trained exactly like he was. Which well, is... I know of at least one other. Yeah, it's it's interesting that like even in the book I just mentioned, Stripling brings up Petrovich's work, and it's like. He brings up those those ridiculous inscriptions that. Oh, he I idolizes mean, Petrovich. I, I have Petrovich's book. Yeah, like, I do too. Book. It's like it's like and even when I was a proponent of the early day, I read this and I'm like, this is like I'm not an expert on this, but I just like I can <laughs> see mistakes in what he's making. Like, I, oh, yeah, it's like I can <laughs> I can see mistakes of what he's making. I don't know the Hebrew language <laughs> that well, but even I could see mistakes in there. <laughs> And oh, yeah, like, it's just I was rife like, with mistakes. <laughs> yeah. And I like Stripling was bringing him up. And I'm like, Stripling just like. Okay. You okay. have to kind of understand Stripling's background, too. You have to understand Stripling's background. He does not have a PhD in anything. <laughs> okay. He, he never went through the process. He started a PhD in archaeology and failed out. Oh. essentially what happened. Mm. He then got a doctor of ministry in church leadership. That's his doctorate. He's got a demon. He's got a professional doctorate, not a research doctorate. Okay? So his area of expertise, if, if he has one, is, is church leadership. Mm -hmm. However, he really, really wanted to be an archaeologist and a historian. And unfortunately, he really sucks as a historian. <laughs> He's, he's terrible at it. He, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give him credit where, where credit is due. He's a, reason, he's a good field digger. He's a mm. good field archaeologist. Mm. He, can, he, can, he can organize a site, and he can, he can excavate it, and he can find stuff. That's the definition of a good field archaeologist. But when it comes to interpreting that data, he, he is awful absolutely dreadful at it yeah and when i read his chapter in the book i mean like he's using a lot of this stuff that initially convinced me of the late date plus petrovich's inscriptions which i didn't even believe but he but it's like i mean it, it's now on the other side when I'm, I'm holding more to the late date i can sort of see where the error he's going in in that direction and mm -hmm. you, but a lot of laymen are going to read that and just think he is presenting the most evidence without understanding a lot of the problems with it yeah interesting yeah. but but your average lady doesn't doesn't understand either the difference between evidence and supposition mm -hmm. we we have uh and we've done we've done a terrible job in the church educating our laity we've done a terrible job at this 
it's it's so dreadful the the knowledge level of of the laity to evaluate these things that even the most minor sort of inconsistency will throw our laity for a loop completely throw them off kilter because we've done a really really poor job of this we haven't taught the church how to evaluate how to think through these issues so when you say okay someone comes up to you and say well i like this guy because he's saying all this evidence and you look at it and go what evidence it's, it's all supposition it's all mm -hmm. conjecture it's good storytelling but it's not good evidence because it's not evidence at all hmm. when it comes to um you, you mentioned like you know that he's a bible scholar or church leader and all that stuff but mm -hmm. in, in that me of the fact that sometimes when we use the Bible, even when we talk about the resurrection or things like that, some people will say, well, you can't use the Bible to uh, prove that the resurrection happened or something like that. In this case, um, how, how does the Bible help us guide or map um, the Exodus? And then how do we look at the data on the field and say, hope, you know, this, this matches or anything like that? Like, how does how does the Bible help you with that as a guide, I guess? Okay, we do have to be very careful here to understand what are the limits of evidence. Mm -hmm. Evidence can tell you when physical things, things in the physical world happened. Okay, it can it can give you some some indication of that 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 regards, but it's not the same as as you know witnessing the event itself. It's sort of a shadow, an echo of what has been. The other thing we have to also understand as a limit of evidence is that it's not going to tell you when something supernatural happened, something that's so out of the realm of nature that it's going to either distort nature or not leave a footprint that's recognizable. Okay, So we have to be careful here to recognize that, that evidence has certain limits. Now, we are fortunate in the Exodus account that there are there is a lot of, say, natural claims and natural facts in the Exodus, in, in the book of Exodus, to which evidence can be ascertained, where evidence is germane and relevant. You know, and, and examples of this include the building of mud bricks. You know, there's lots of sort of brass tacks, how mud bricks are built in the book of Exodus that we can then use and say, okay, does the, does the evidence that we find in Egyptian texts, in material culture remains, is that consistent with what's uh, left for us in the, in the biblical texts? So in that respect, we can say then that, okay, if it's consistent in the, um, in the Exodus account, then yeah, then that, at least that particular portion of the Exodus account has been validated. And if it's yeah, validated, we, then it's useful. Yeah, this is something I think I said on, on Myth Vision recently is like we can never use this like prove God exists. It just is circumstantial evidence that helps support the overall biblical case. But you can't use it to like jump to the conclusion that this proves that, that God literally spoke to Moses through a burning bush and led Israel out of Egypt. It you know, you can have an entire naturalistic Exodus account with this evidence. Yeah. It's nothing you can get beyond that. And so archaeology is cool and interesting, but it's not 
it can't get you to ever really do what maybe the hardline skeptic wants, which is to prove that, you know, that really there was Yahweh that was leading Israel out of Egypt. Yeah. You know, like, like, like asking, how, how do you prove that Jesus walked on water? Show me the evidence for that. What are you <laughs> going to find? Wet footprints? I mean, really? <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> I mean, it's silly even to ask for evidence like that. You know, because I mean, there, there found, won't like, be evidence. I mean, even if we found a stele on like the Sea of Galilee, that is it here is where Jesus walked on water. I mean, and it dated yeah. to like the first century. I mean, even that wouldn't prove it. It would be very, no, very interesting, would. but it wouldn't. It would like... be interesting, but it wouldn't prove it. <laughs> because evidence has limits. Right. It can limit, <laughs> uh, it, it limits us to naturalistic events, things that happen in, na in, in, in nature. Okay, uh, so I guess Michael, you mentioned like at the very beginning that the things that led you to uh, reject the late date at the very beginning. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you will say were the most compelling uh, at the very beginning when you make your video? Even then, that you thought, man, this is like really good evidence. Uh, I it really uh, gives a, a really good case for the early date. Uh, what are some of those things uh, specifically, and uh, how did you change your mind uh, when it comes to that stuff? So probably the first thing may have been the Berlin pedestal, which according to some you know, scholars, it, it mentions Israel, and that would date to around 1350 or so BC. I remember reading Hofmeier's criticism of it, and I, I remember not being convinced because he's not mentioning other toponyms. He's just mentioning... He's not mentioning like he says like it could be read like these this other way, but doesn't really mention any other uh, known people groups that the toponyms he's using could reference. And so I thought, you know, you know, just based on simplicity, it probably is Israel. A after which I came like even before my documentary came out, I think I found someone who said it m actually makes more sense to be Syria. And so that was going to throw a little bit of a wrench in my in my uh, video on the conquest. But there was that. And then uh, Dr. Falk mentions it probably refers to Mount Seir. Um, he's got a paper coming out on it recently. Uh, another issue was probably the abandonment of Avaris uh, because, you know, even in five years of the Exodus, Stripling is using that as evidence for the, for the early date. And he's saying, like, he's, he's citing BTEC claiming that, you know, Avaris was abandoned during or around the time of Amenhotep II. However, when you actually take a second look at those, he's actually talking, BTEC's actually talking about the Egyptians abandoning the site. There, there are specific, their military base there, the, the, um, the pallet, the, the residence that was there. Uh, they're not actually, the site was not actually fully abandoned by the Canaanite people yet. So that is kind of a problem. But I, at the time I thought that was pretty good evidence because it sounds like the site was actually abandoned during that time. Actually was not abandoned until Ramesses II though. Uh, the other piece may have been the um, the Amarna letters, because if you read, and actually the first time I read them was because I was trying to study David Roll's case for the Exodus, and he uses the Amarna letters to argue this is mentioning King Saul and David, and that was pretty bad. But uh, the early day proponents use it as evidence of Joshua's conquest, and if you do pick some lines out, it does sound a lot like the conquest. However, in the Amarna letters, they do the, the Habiru or the Apiru do more and do other things that's not mentioned in the conquest. Like they attack much further north, they attack much further south. They don't 
accurately entirely line up with Joshua's conquest. So a lot of early day proponents will highlight the similarities and ignore the differences. And so those are like three of the biggest things that I think moved me to the early date initially. Uh, and then of course there were other things as well I was looking at at the time, but I would say those are the three most important at the time. All right, uh, Dr. Falk, what do you think about that? I think the devil is always in the details. When you look at these sort of cosmetic similarities and you can find these cosmetic similarities just repeated in history. So it's not even just limited to, say, the Amarna letters. You can go further back and look for cosmetic similarities. This is why we do have a plethora of different views on the Exodus, is because of these cosmetic similarities. I mean, you've got ultra-early dates for the Exodus, and you even have ultra-late dates for the Exodus, just because of cosmetic similarities. But it's only when you start getting down to the real details. Now... With the, say, the abandonment of a Varus uh, during the reign of uh, Amenhotep II, you know, that was done through a misreading of a particular uh, report by Monfred Betok. And in that report, he's only talking about the, the military fortress, you know, the, for, the Tutmosis the, the third fortress at Avaris, while the rest of Avaris city remained in occupation. Uh, including the Semitic Temple of Baal. As far as the Amarna letters and the Apiru, um, you know, Jones correctly assesses it. You know, they're up in Lebanon. They're up in Lebanon capturing Byblos. Well, the Israelite conquest never made it up to, Bab to Lebanon. You know, that's completely outside of their range. So that's that's a that's a deep deep problem, as well as say you've got other problems with the Amarna letters too, which is the plethora of Canaanite names all through it. You don't find Yahwistic names in the uh, in the Amarna letters. So, but then again too, you also have other inconsistencies in the Amarna letters as well, such as the king of Hatsor expanding his reign. <laughs> You know, he's conquering kingdoms in the Amarna letters. He's not being conquered. <laughs> he's the aggressor, not on the defensive. And when you start looking at, say, the chronology of this, the early date has to have Hotsor conquered it by that point easily. So this is an inconsistency that is really hard to overlook. And then when you look at the archaeology of, of, of say, uh, a place like Hatsor, where it's the, the archaeology is very pristine, you have a conquest, a destruction layer at Hatsor, because we remember the biblical texts tell us that Hatsor was destroyed with fire. It was destroyed with fire. It's one of the three cities mentioned in the Pentateuch that's destroyed with fire. You have a destruction layer in the early Bronze Age, and then you don't have another one again until the late bronze. So at that 1200 BC mark, you roughly 1210, perhaps maybe as early as 1220, you get another destruction layer at Hatsor. This is a big problem for the early date. What, what early date proponents will do with Hatsor or Hatsor is they will, uh, they'll go to Brian Wood and they'll say, well, there was a late bronze age destruction. And then they'll say, well, that later 
late Bronze Age destruction that happened in, at the end of the late Bronze Age, that corresponds to what happened in Judges with uh, uh, Deborah and the war there. The problem is, is that if you read Judges, it never mentions that Hatsor was destroyed. It just mentions a battle with forces from Hatsor, but they never actually go like Joshua did and they burn it down. Yeah. So that yeah, the burning it, is in Joshua, not Judges. <laughs> yeah, you know, they'll say there was there was two destructions of Hatsor, but that that's not even taking the plain reading of the Bible. The plain <laughs> no. reading of the Bible would mean there was only one destruction, and the one that happened in the in the late Bronze Age, at the end of the late Bronze Age around, I think, like 1250, 1200 BC or so. It happens right when late date Exodus says the Exodus took place, but it also, there's also like defacing of statues, there's mutilation of, of idols there, which corresponds with an Israelite practice. Hmm. Interesting. Um, one of the things that I don't think you guys have mentioned this, I, um, is uh, that, that people that propose, you know, the early date, they use First Kings as well. They use First Kings chapter six, and they say that basically that places the Exodus four hundred and eighty years before, I believe, before the uh, construction of the, uh, of Solomon's temple. Um, and 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 I guess they take this to be like a very solid um, case for for yeah. their position. Um, how do you respond to something like that? Uh it's it's the one interpretation fallacy, essentially. You're basically taking those numbers and reading them just one way, and uh, the interpretation the one interpretation fallacy has been noted by uh, you know D. A. Carson, Grant Osborne, and it, it's a common fallacy. But we know that um, the use of numbers by Hebrew writers is often more nuanced. And we do find that nuance here in that particular passage. Now, when, when we look at, say, a passage like this, we always have to take it according to its genre. Genre is everything. This is how we discern poetry from prose in, in, the, in the Hebrew text. What's a historical narrative versus what is, say, a prophecy or, or a psalm or a proverb? You know, 1 Kings 6.1 is also has a genre. It's a temple dedication inscription. And as it being a temple dedication inscription, it follows the rules of dedication inscriptions that we find all over the ancient Near East. These rules, including you tie the event to a famous event, and then you add a number of years that has numerological, but not necessarily accurate count. And we find these all over the ancient Near East, where there's, where these uh, temples being dedicated. You know, this is the 720th year of the foundation of the temple by, um, by some Assyrian king, and you know that 720 years isn't accurate because you can do the the chronology and you can find out it's not accurate. <laughs> you know that the 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 um um. Seti the first 400-year uh, stela at Avaris was, you know, done in reference to the ascension of a King Nebti. Well, a, a Hyksos king, specifically a Hyksos king Nebti. Well, that was 50 years before the Hyksos ever came to the throne, ever ruled over Egypt. So, you know, we see these, 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 these this use of um, of idiomatic numbers in 
in ancient Near Eastern culture, you know, and, and it's particularly true uh, in the Levant with uh, the number 40. 40 has very special significance, uh, just as uh, the letter uh, number 60 has in Mesopotamia and four has in Egypt. So we do see that there's a special significance to these numbers that does mean an indeterminate long time. Like, for example, we have the Mesha Stila, where King Mesha talks about the um, 40th year of the reign of King Omri. Well, King Omri didn't reign 40 years. He reigned 12. So that's clearly a meant to be an indeterminate long reign of time. And we see this expression even used in biblical texts, such as, for example, you know, David reigns 40 years, and yet his son Absalom returns, and after 40 years, he then approaches his father David. So we do see this expression even used in biblical texts. There's a there's a really good one actually that um that I remember Hoffmeyer pointed at one point. It's um it, early day proponents want to say that that they want to take the forty years literal. That when Moses left Egypt, he was forty. When he went, he he was in Midian for forty more years, and then he you know went for another forty years till death. So they'll say you know he was eighty when he left and went back to Egypt. It says in Exodus 4 that he put his two sons on donkeys with his wife and went with them. Now, think about this. At I this like this point, one. His sons are in his 30s. His young son, like he's been in there for, he's been married for 40 years. He's got sons that are in his, so he's picking up his fully grown adult sons. And all right, we're going back to Egypt. All right. His <laughs> son, two grown sons and, and white, aged wife on a donkey. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Like, it doesn't make sense. It, the, it, the, the text implies they were young. These were like, you know, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, under 10 or so for both of them. Infants. So it's like, yeah. They're so infants. it's always funny to read that, picturing Moses picking up these 38 and 36-year-old sons and putting them on donkeys. Like it's Poor it's, donkey. <laughs> I guess in relationship to the number 40, uh, it, whenever the, the, the people came out of Egypt, they supposedly spend 40 years in the wilderness uh, and mm -hmm. um, they spend most of their time in, and, and forgive me if I don't pronounce this right, but this is how I always say it, Kadesh Barnea. Uh, Kadesh Barnea, yeah. Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea okay. is fine. There's <laughs> nothing wrong and, with that pronunciation. All right, good. That's good. Awesome. And, and um, it says that they spend 40 years there, um, basic, well, in the wilderness. Um, what do we make of that? And, and I, I guess, like you know, like Michael mentioned, uh, that you see this number thing pattern working all over scripture. Is this something oh, yeah. normal? You um, see forty used all over the place to the scriptures in variety of contexts. You even mm -hmm. see it used in the New te uh, Testament in that same way. You know, uh, you know, Christ is, uh, you know, uh, fast for forty days and forty nights. You know, there's. It's, it's meant to be an indeterminate long fast. It's, you know, that, that whole 40 in the wilderness, that's an indeterminate. It could be 36 years. It could be 42. Nobody really knows because it's, it's a euphemism. It's, a euph it's an idiom. We use numeric idioms all the time, you know. And, and, and all an idiom is is something that is not directly translatable from the component words. You know, if I say uh, I put you, uh, I'm, I'm behind the eight ball here. Okay, you're not going to get eight and translate eight and ball and and figure out what I just said. 
you know, if I say I had a, um, it was a 911. We all know that that means an emergency, but you can't get that from nine, one, and one. But if I change that slight, that, that idiom slightly to a, it was a nine, 11 day. Same numbers, just used in a different way, in a different idiomatic way to mean it's a disaster. We do this all the time in English. We don't just look at a number and think it's a count. We have expressions. It was my lucky seven, my unlucky Friday the 13th. You know, we do this all the time in English because language has, has subtleties. It's nuanced. And I, I think it's a kind of primitivism to say that the um, Israelites couldn't have nuance in their language. It really does a disservice to their culture. Because Hebrew, the Hebrew language was highly nuanced, highly subtle in some ways. It's also very overt in others, but, but it had that flexibility, that virtuosity that we find in languages. But to just say that, to, to use a concordant reading where we just have one translation for every word in the Hebrew scriptures, we reduce the scriptures to a caricature. And I think that's very dangerous. It leads to really dangerous outcomes. I mean, we do the same thing with the word for grand. I mean, grand can mean a thousand, but it can also mean like the Grand Canyon or like a grand old time. I mean, the word grand doesn't just have to mean a thousand. It can mean all sorts of other things. We don't mean the thousand canyon when we talk about the Grand Canyon. Precisely. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I have a question and this comes from, uh, well, it's a personal question, but it's sort of like, I want to know your thoughts about um, this German scholar. He's I don't know, personal questions? No one told me about personal questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, he basically, uh, he makes a proposal. Uh, his name is, uh, he's an Egyptologist. His name is Johann Christoph. You may, you might know who he is. Who? Uh, Johann Christoph. Uh, Does not ring a bell. Okay. Um, and he basically, what he's suggesting is that the story has no single origin, but rather it combines uh, numerous uh, historical facts or experiences. Uh, basically, he talks about the Armana and the uh, Hyksos periods. And mm -hmm. basically what he says is that those the, the story of the Exodus uh, is mixed up all together and it became like a like a folk memory. Like people just started talking about it, and, and they just took it as being. Oh yeah, the Israelites had had um, access to the complete Amarna Royal Library. You know, they just could just walk into Amarna, go right into the royal palace, go right to the scriptorium, and start reading those Amarna letters because they were publicly available. Uh huh. <laughs> The, the, the Amarna letters were not for public consumption. They were private correspondence. They were diplomatic letters that were sent from foreign countries to the King Akhenaten or his successor, Samankare Tutankhamun, at Amarna. They were received in the royal palace and they were put in a scriptorium in the royal palace. They were not for public reading. That, those letters were there 
that palace was there for 15, 17 years for a very short period of time, and the site was abandoned completely. Those letters were not in circulation. So I don't know where he thinks that, you know, people took the contents of the Amarna letters and started adding them to the accounts of the Hyksos to, to generate a legend. Because a lot of this stuff was just not in public circulation. You know, and that's the whole reason we were able to, to recover them today was because they weren't in public circulation. So um, I, I don't understand where he's going to, going to get that from exactly if he's talking about the Amarna letters you know, being part of the legend that went into the Exodus. So, yeah, that's not the way, that's not the way that, and you do get Egyptologists sometimes that try to strain a gnat here to, um, to try to come up with these theories. Like, for example, um, I heard one um, that, uh, I um, it was a German Egyptologist, I don't know his name, that suggested that you know, Israelites went to Tanis and read Paramses off the um, off the off the walls of the temple. It's like, wait, this is an Egyptian temple. All that stone was taken from uh, Paramses to Tanis and put inside a temple, which is completely private. You know, Israelites are not going to get into the temple. Because it's 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 just not accessible to them. It was guarded. You know, we have to understand that a lot of these places were. I mean, these weren't public libraries. You know, temples, palaces were not public. They were all private. So the idea that they were accessible to these 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 dirty foreigners is just is just ridiculous. It's not the way the culture worked. I, I think with the uh, the whole uh, idea of the Exodus didn't happen as it's you know, and it's like this amalgamation of different traditions. It's it's a it's the problem I have with it is that it just seems too ad hoc. Why would they why would they decide to make up an entire news story from other entirely different traditions? Uh, there doesn't really seem to be a precedence for that in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, they're very much uh, like with one of the things John Walton notes is they're looking into the past and they're looking at their history and they're trying to see what God was doing in those historical moments. So they are very much trying to find the theological meaning in these historical events, but they weren't going to like concoct things like they weren't going to change their history for that. So like with, with people like the guy you mentioned, as well as like, you know, Ronald Hendel, for example, they want to say like the exit never happened. It was like an amalgamation of traditions that and they just sort of concocted a history. But we don't have any historical sources for that. We, we have the book of Exodus, which says there was a group of mixed multitude that came out of Egypt that became Israel. We don't have a source that says there was just a bunch of Canaanites that were hanging out in Canaan and they decided to become Israel and then make up an Exodus narrative. So we have an account that explains where they came from. And I, I don't see why we would reject that and, may, and hold to something that a scholar is sort of coming up with based on very, very, very limited data. I mean, I wouldn't do this with like, uh, you know, like Sumerian history when they talk about like the Amorites coming in and uh, invading and whatnot and eventually conquering and establishing the kingdom of Babylon. 
I feel like I would just accept what the history that they hand down to us presents. I mean, I could do the same with like Sargon of Akkad. We cannot find the city of Akkad. There's a lot of, uh, all of our biographical information on Sargon comes from centuries after he reigned. But I don't think there was like a bunch of different Sargons and they amalgamize in the one empire building Sargon. I just think it's more probable to take the idea that there was an actual Sargon and he built an Akkadian kingdom early on. I, I, I don't see why, if we're not going to do that with Sargon, why would we do that Exodus? And again, as I mentioned earlier, this doesn't prove God exists. You can have a naturalistic Exodus account. I don't see why we wouldn't just take that if, if you don't want to, if you're, even if you're not a Christian. I think that raises a great point. I think that raises a very important point. Uh, and that's how are we treating these texts? There's a lot of, in uh, biblical studies, there's a lot of drive to try to make, say, the Torah multiple sources that are written by multiple authors over multiple centuries, you know, based upon considerations that we wouldn't accept for any other ancient Near Eastern text. There, the, and to, to repeat Michael here, there's an ad hoc nature to this. Like, for example, they will use, say, uh, to bring up, say, judges, you know, they'll take the, the historical Deborah account and say that that's written at a different time by a different author than the poetic uh, uh, version of the events. Where in, say, Egyptian literature, we'll find stela with historical and poetical uh, components on the same composition. And nobody thinks that there's anything unusual about that. They'll, they'll ascribe that to one author. That's, that's not a problem. But when it comes to the biblical text, they apply this special treatment to the biblical text to try to demonstrate that, that, that there's these diverse authors over centuries and they're cutting and pasting and they're making up history and they're, they're going through all these intellectual machinations to keep a hypothesis alive rather than just reading the text as an ancient, normal ancient Near Eastern document. It, it, it's treated with such exceptionalism, it isn't even funny. This is a really good book that addresses a lot of that. I just finished it recently. It's uh, pretty great on addressing a lot of those claims and making some pretty good arguments for the unity of the Pentateuch and whatnot. And so a lot of really good stuff in there that addresses that. When it comes to, uh, you know, some of the names that we're giving uh, for people in the Exodus um, and also or during the time of the Exodus, the story itself um, and the places for, um, you know, towns and or I guess you want to call them towns, um, like how does that help us um, understand whether the, the data supports an early date or a late date? Um, how do you how would you make like a compelling case about it based on the names themselves and mm -hmm. the things that we see uh, in the story? Well, we have to understand that geography is not it's not just about place; it's about time. Geography itself gives us a lot of chronological information, you know. And and I use this when I talk about say you know um, uh, tying down synchronisms. It's not enough to have a person, you also need a place as well. 
And genealogists tell you this all the time. If you're reconstructing a family genealogy, the first thing a genealogist will tell you is it's not enough to have the name of your ancestors, but you also have to know where they lived because that is confirming data if you find secondary sources. Okay. So when we look at the, um, the route of, say, the Exodus, where it talks about these, these cities, we know because of the archaeological context when of those circum uh, cer certain cities you know were built were constructed were renamed p ramses we know that the city of p ramses was originally settled by seti the first who was the father of ramses the second that would qualify as a late date we know that, say, uh, Pithom, also called Itham in the Bible, was called in Egyptian Pitum or Pertum, House of Atum. And House of Atum was the name that was given to the capital city in the Wadi Tumalot when Ramses II built a temple of Atum there. That's it, and the city was rechristened with that name. So that name alone gives us chronological information. We know that the fortress of Migdal was built by Seti I because he takes great pride in this, this accomplishment. Plus, we also have other cities uh, and towns along the Exodus route that we find in Ramesside letters, such as uh, Pihahi wrote and Balsafan. We don't know when those last two were originally built, but we know they're extant in the Ramesside period. So this gives us pretty compelling information that the um, at least uh, at least the route that's uh, recorded in the Exodus dates to the 19th dynasty. I think one of the biggest things that convinced me is the interaction you see through the account of Exodus. So. Early day proponents want to say that the, uh, the, the, the Egyptian palace that was at Avaris was being used as like a headquarters for like Thutmose, for like Thutmose III and uh, Amenhotep II. And that would be very unlikely uh, because the Egyptian kings of the 18th dynasty would hang out at Thebes where their harems were, where their families were, where their royal courts were. They weren't going to be up in this far off Canaanite city with a very small palace for long periods of time. And like, you know, like on the night of like the Passover, uh, the Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron like that night and they get there like that night. I mean, they're not traveling all the way to Thebes, which is hundreds of miles away. They're just traveling over to P. Ramesses, which is like half a mile or so. I forget the exact distance, uh, but very close by. So that very much aligned with the idea that the capital was P. Ramesses, and that only happened in the 19th dynasty. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, I have another question, um, and this one, I, I, we're gonna do a Q&A and we'll, we'll try to get as many questions as we can. I, I don't wanna take too much time from Michael and Dr. Falk, um, but thank you guys uh, so much for all your questions uh, that you have submitted already. Uh, if you found this conversation so far uh, helpful, um, go ahead and share it, um, like the, the, the video, and um, subscribe if you haven't subscribed. Uh, we'll, we'll have more interesting conversations coming up um, here in the future. But anyway, 
Um, I have a question from a personal friend, and he wants to know, um, like, he knows your position, Dr. Falcon, you know who he is, Adam. Um, and, and he wants to know, <laughs> he wants to know. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> uh, Michael, uh, Dr. Falcon and I had a conversation before in the past and, and Adam was with us and Adam is somebody that Dr. Falk knows. Uh, he wants to be an Egyptologist as well and get his PhD on that. So he's working hard on that. Um, it, basically what he, what he wants to know is like, you know, he agrees with you that the exodus kind of like, you know, either rises or falls based on the, the, the story of Joseph. And so his question is, um, is there any evidence surrounding the Joseph narrative found in Genesis 37 through 50? And if so, where and how much? Okay, we're again using here indirect evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, we do have a preservation problem in the Delta. The Nile Delta is a very wet place. So we don't have a lot of historical records and inscriptions that have survived from there just because the high salinity of the water in the groundwater destroys texts, whether it's papyrus or stone. So we do have a preservation problem. So we do have to ask certain questions of consistency when it regards the Joseph narrative, because we're not, gonna, we're not likely to find direct evidence. So the question is, could a, a Semite have become vizier of Egypt? Well, we do actually have examples of two examples of Semites that do become viziers over Egypt in a later period of time. You know, we have Apparel under the reign of Akhenaten who becomes vizier, and we have the Chancellor Bey uh, who becomes uh, vizier at the end of the 19th dynasty. So um, there, is, there is a matter of consistency there that at least is plausible. So it is plausible for a, a Semite to become vizier over Egypt. Is our, our other portions of the narrative consistent? Could Joseph have received a chain of gold for his service? Well, yes. The chain of gold is was a was a high, high honor in ancient Egypt. It was the highest honor you could receive as a non-royal in Egypt. Uh, and, and we have statues of various officials in Egypt who have received the chain, chain of gold for their service. It's, it's the equivalent, Egypt's equivalent to the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's a big, big deal. Big, big deal. So when he mentions it in that, that Joseph received a chain of gold from, from the king, that is, a, that is an important historical detail. We are told that he rode in a chariot. So that sort of limits the time frame because the chariot is reintroduced to Egypt. There, there's some, some indication that we find one or two chariots in the Old Kingdom, but it wasn't used in warfare. It wasn't used as a common vehicle in Egypt until the Second Intermediate Period. So that sort of, in, sort of, um, sort of shoehorns the Joseph narrative during, into the time of the Hyksos, which makes sense. Because the Hyksos themselves are Amoritic Semitic rulers over the uh, Delta region in Egypt. So you have a royal line that is Asiatic Semite as its culture inviting in more Semites 
that they have found particular favor towards. So all of this makes sense within the Joseph narrative. So it's a consistent narrative. I think uh, one of the things also to keep in mind with the Joseph narrative, I, I believe it was Abigail Tucker did like a, um, she did like satellite imagery of Egypt and she showed that like less than like 1% of Egypt has even been excavated. So there's still a lot of data that's probably still out there. And a lot of it oh, has yeah. probably just been lost to time. Like well, uh, we found like scriptoriums where like, you know, we have found like the, the seals that would hold them, but they, this, the, the, yeah. the papyrus has like, you know, disintegrated away over time. It's just, yeah, that, uh, there, there was a scriptorium found at Avaris that had the 300 bullae and a bullae is just a clay stamp, but none of the documents survived except for a couple fragments of clay tablets. So that's, that's, that's all we have from, say, that scriptorium, which is really unfortunate because uh, there's some juicy tidbits in there from just what we had of the, the one or two surviving tablets, which were actually sent from the first uh, dynasty of Babylon. So there's actually diplomatic relations between the first dynasty of Babylon and the Hicks, early Hyksos rule. So mm -hmm. that is a very... As I said, very interesting, um, tantalizing details there, but we don't have enough to say a whole lot. Well, on the uh, chariot issue, one of my favorite stories that happened to me one time is somehow on Facebook, I started talking or fi basically fighting with David Rowe. And oh, I, was pointing <laughs> I was pointing out there's no evidence of chariot armies in the Middle Kingdom when you want to place the Exodus. And his reply yeah. was, well, actually... We have an inscription of Didu Moses' son, who was a general, and he's depicted with chariot gloves. He didn't provide oh, a link. No. He didn't provide an inscription. I tried searching. I couldn't find anything. I'm not sure he made it up or whatever, but like, I was oh, like, made that's it. the best you got. Like, let's just say this is real. You got a pair of gloves. Like, you need a little more than that to get to their entire chariot armies in the Middle Kingdom. Well, there was a really good work. I, I can't remember um, the name of the author, um, uh, but she did a um, – her dissertation was on horses in Egypt. And it's fascinating because she goes through the history of the horse in Egypt. Well, in order for you to have a chariot, you have to have a certain kind of horse, one that can pull a load. And she makes the case, and a very compelling case, that the horses that we had in Egypt up to the Second Intermediate Period were these wild, frail horses that were completely inappropriate for riding. It's only when Semites start importing horses from, say, uh, Mitanni and the Hurrian sources that they start breeding those horses with, say, the, the wild horse to get a more robust stock that could be used to pull chariots so any chariot that would have come into egypt prior to the second intermediate period had to be a complete import which means chariot and horse so for the production of a chariot army we have to understand that that in, in ancient egypt chariot armies were not provided by the government in order to become a charioteer in egypt you had to buy your own chariot, and they were expensive.
because that's how they assigned rank is by the purchase of equipment. The government only gave you the horse. That's all the government. The horse belonged to the government. So in order for this, the chariot armies to form in Egypt, you had to have this sort of, of, of synergy, this historical synergy between the horses that the king could breed and the, um, the conscripts or recruits that had to buy the chariot to go with the horse. So that only comes together during the second intermediate period where you had a organized program of horse breeding by the Hyksos king. So you're not going to find a chariot army earlier than the second intermediate period, not in Egypt. So the whole idea of Pharaoh just scooting around in a chariot and <laughs> Joseph following long after in his own chariot, you know, that's just, that's not happening prior to 1666 BC. It, it's not happening. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I don't know if you guys have anything else, but uh, those are pretty much all the questions that I had. I mean, I, I have a lot more questions that I can oh, think of, but um, you're lying I, I like on to... the air with no more questions. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Come on. But uh, <laughs> I would like to get to some of the, the questions that people ask, uh, especially because there, there's quite a few that I find them uh, find them to be a, a little bit interesting. I think you guys can um, definitely uh, help with that. So if you guys uh, are okay with that, uh, we'll jump right into the Q and A. I'm good. Sure. All right. So first, I, I I don't know if I have ever seen um, anything like this uh, in any other channel. Um, I think maybe Trinity Radio, where somebody gave a super chat this big. Maybe you guys have experienced something. Whoa. Um, you know, like I, I don't know. Uh, that's a big number for me. So um, Pete that's Miller. A big number for me too. <laughs> Uh, Pete Miller is basically thanking you guys for all the great work that you guys have been doing. Um, I met Michael, um, I believe it was last. Michael, when did you have your TED Talk? Just before COVID. Like, it was just before, like, like I got back and everyone was like, oh, close everything down. And then I got sick a couple weeks later. So uh, good thing you didn't get sick. Yeah, that's yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I got to meet Michael, and and one of the the things that I that I noticed from him is that he's a very humble guy, and and so I have not only benefited from some of the work that he has done, but um, I know I'm amazing. I know <laughs> so but, humble. Um, I get it. Yeah. But but just getting the chance to meet him, and, and, and we went out and had lunch together. Uh, Mike Winger was there. Uh, that was really awesome. And so I, I just want to let you guys know that he is as cool as he seems to be. <laughs> uh, I had a chance to meet him. So, um, yeah. And Dr. Oh, shut up, I'm lame. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> um, I had a conversation. Like, yo, we're having a conversation, and I was just quiet, just trying to, like, basically get all that information in. And I was like, man, I just I love this. So, like, if I could sit, like, you know, here just listening to you, both of you guys, uh, that would be great. Uh, just trying to get all that information and, and learn from you guys. Uh, Dr. Falk, uh, again, you know, your work uh, has been huge. Like, I did not know anything about this this stuff before until I came across your YouTube channel. And that was thanks to Michael Jones as well. Like, he was sharing some of your stuff. And I started listening to it, and I was like, man, this is so good. And I just... 
I love the fact that we get to hear from someone like you, a scholar, and and just see what the evidence for the Exodus is. And I just that, but like you know, just the the, the stuff from Egypt, like all, all that information, is just being great. So, well, people ask me, people ask me all the time if uh, if I'll ever run out of of evidence, and it's like uh, I haven't yet. <laughs> it's like like. You know, it, it's kind of like that 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 uh, uh, Rick and Morty meme. You know, evidence? There's no evidence. Run! And and, and the guy, the alien, dies, and he goes, "What do you mean no evidence? There's lots of evidence. There's lots of good evidence." <laughs> <laughs> I will never run out of work to do. I will never run out of work to do. I've got Amen. I've got I've got papers and projects backlogged for years. Um. It, it, I don't have it. What I don't have is enough hours in the day. That's what I don't have. But I have lots and lots of evidence. That that's something I don't. I don't. I, I'm not uh, without. So. Well, that's awesome. So I hear I have another super chat, um, and this is from a friend of mine, uh, also um, somebody who uh, I met, and it's a pretty good guy. Um, so okay, I read it. In, I read it in the comment section. I was wondering if he was being serious or was just presenting the objection because I've heard a lot of atheists online say this, and they clearly have not read the Bible when they make this argument. So, um, yeah, I, I believe this is a serious question. So, um, Cairo to Jerusalem is a six-day walk. Can you guys talk about why the Exodus uh, should have taken forty years? Well, first of all, they're not taking the the road of Horus. They're not taking the way of uh, the uh, the road of the to the city of the Philistines. You know, yeah, sure. If you if you walk along the coast of the Sinai, yes, six, it's a six day walk. Okay, fair enough. Now, put border checkpoints there and military fortresses and charioteers. It's probably going to take you a little longer, even if you took that route. Because you're going to be fighting your way constantly through it. It's also you also don't have the benefit of modern roads. So let's take let's say you take that 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 quick route through the northern northern road. Okay. Now you've made it to the Philistine coast. Okay, you're now in in in, in the Philistine the coastal plain. Now we have to remember that the geography of ancient uh, Israel has changed also. It's not just the geography of the Sinai, or sorry, the, the uh, climate of the Sinai and the geography of the Sinai that's changed, but it's also the, the climate and geography of Israel that's changed. You know, prior to the Israelis taking over uh, Israel in the 1940s, we have to remember that there was a swamp that separated the coastal plain and the Shafela Valley. So there wasn't a direct road from say the coastal plain to Jerusalem you would either have to cut south around it or go north around it through the Jezreel Valley so we have to remember that when we're talking about what's a six-day route today that wasn't six days in the past even if you could but let's just let's just give let's just steel man this argument let's let's give them a, an extra say four days ten days and let's say somehow that they managed to to brisk through the the checkpoints without you know without 
you know, any intervention at all by the garrisons. Yeah, that's very likely. Um, they're still not going to, they're still not going to engage the Philistines in the coastal plain. They're going to want to go around. But there's also more that's going on here with that, that, that movement in the Sinai. Because the fact is that they're not taking the straight route. The route, the, the, the whole point of the Exodus is not just to bring the people out of Egypt. It's to bring Egypt out of the people. And that's a very, very important point. There's a, a process of de-Egyptianizing that the Israelites have to go through. Yes, you can take them move them over uh, quickly, run them across, say, the, um, say the, the way of shore. That's the alternate route they could have taken. They could have also taken the way of, of shore, which is very, very, has very little water, not enough water for, to, be, to bring you know, um, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people even across. And let's say they survived the dehydration or they stored up enough water beforehand and had enough foresight to do this and all that, and they make it there. There's still going to be Egyptian in, in mindset when they arrive in the promised land, and they're just going to fall back into their own ways. So the whole reason 40, that there's 40 years is because they have an Egyptian mindset. They reach the promised land within a year. And then they're told, well, you know, they send in the spies. And two spies come back and say, yeah, the land's ripe for taking. The other ten say, oh, no, no, we're afraid because it's giants. And the people become afraid. And that's because they still have that Egyptian mindset. So the whole process of wandering 40 years in the wilderness is to change the mindset of the Israelites from being, say... Uh, Egyptian urbanites to um, pastoralists to get them used to a pastoral lifestyle. The lifestyle yeah, yeah. of the land of uh, flowing with milk and honey. Because the milk and the honey, it's goat's milk and it's wild honey. It's what God provides from the land. It's to create a people dependent upon God. Yeah, the, the Bible's pretty clear it didn't take 40 years for them to get there. Numbers 14 no. says they were they were condemned to wander for additional time because they wouldn't they didn't trust uh, Joshua and Caleb. So it I mean I feel like a lot of atheists make that argument online and it's just clear they have never actually read the Pentateuch. Of course not. <laughs> read the Bible? We hate the Bible. Don't read it. <laughs> you don't have to you don't have to read something to criticize it, right? <laughs> yeah, be surprised many times I've actually heard that. <laughs> I've had one guy tell me I've not read it. Like, well, then why are you even criticizing it? Like, what is I have a, I have another super chat, um, and this one, um, it's rather interesting. Uh, so, if you guys are ready for it, I'm gonna go ahead and show it, and uh, you guys can give your thoughts. Uh, let's uh, try to be, uh, I guess. Uh, nice. Nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Question for IP and Dr. Falk. Love the square quotes. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure uh, 
how how to phrase it, but I, I guess the the main thing is like you do know the Exodus is a fairy tale made by Bronze a Bronze Stone Age goat herders uh, <laughs> elites in the second century BC to control the masses and enslave your mind. I, I, I know no such thing. <laughs> I love I love when I see that because I've actually seen atheists. I think like Arn Ross said it was made up by like Bronze Age goat herders. Okay, you're admitting it's a Bronze Age document. Interesting. You're not. Agreeing that it's an Iron Age or Babylonian exile document. So thank you for that. <laughs> All right. Amen. Yeah, thank you for the super chat. Appreciate it. Um, well, the fact is we have we have we have uh, quotes from the Torah that that date to the sixth seventh century BC. The Ketef Hinam scrolls. You know. <laughs> You know, so we know that it has at least been put to at least silver documents as early as as that. So the whole idea that it's a second century document is just preposterous. <laughs> it's crazy. Mm -hmm. All right. So here's another question. And this one is for Dr. Falk. What does he think about Finkerstein and Silverberg's? work on the exodus i hope i pronounced the second one right i think this the mm -hmm. first one i was somewhere close um he's talking about the book israel unearthed and it's essentially uh Finkelstein silverberg's big book on biblical minimalism and I, I i think it's it's one of those books that is now um kind of laughable it's been it's been disproved by 20 years of turning the spade uh, essentially, he, he doubles downs in their books on the idea that the whole Israelite history, including the time of the kings, was complete fiction. Now, this book was, was published only a few years before the discovery of the Tel Dan Stila. So, uh, and then you had Elliot Mazar's, um, uh, Elat Mazar's uh, excavation at uh, Jerusalem of the Solomonic uh, Palace. And then you had the, the excavations of Telesophy, and it's just it, it's come to a point where what Silverberg and Finkelstein wrote is no longer supportable, which has made him sort of the source of derision in now in, in Israel and in Europe. So, but there is some some interesting things that that we do find in in uh, Israel Finkelstein's book that are that often go overlooked as well. Like one of my favorites is when he talks about, you know, that there was no, um, no exodus. There was no exodus because the Amarna letters tell us that, um, that the, um, uh, that Israel was not in the Levant at that time of the Amarna letters, which, which, and they date to around 1430s in the 1430s. Okay. But what, what's amazing is that, you know, most people, most skeptics will read that because they love, most skeptics love uh, Israel Unearthed. And they'll stop reading there. Only two pages later, Finkelstein says, well, if there were an, uh, 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 an Israelite exodus, it has to come during uh, the reign of Ramses II. <laughs> so, so there's this, this amazing admission that happens in that book only two pages after if people had bothered to continue to read. Mm -hmm. But it's mostly a discredited book these days. 
Okay. And that's because of uh, all the evidence that has been coming up. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, found in the last uh, decades. Michael, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, no, I would, I would essentially agree with what Dr. Falk was saying. I mean, even I mean, even within the past year, the new latest reports on Jericho come out and it's supporting the Exodus account. So, I mean, there's always new evidence coming out and it's always feel like the minimalists are moving further back and over, you know, you know, they were the, the, before we found, found the Tel Dan inscription, they were saying, you know, that or, uh, that David was a myth. And then, of course, we found an explicit mention of him. And so, I mean, it seems like they're always moving further back from their position based on more evidence we find. All right. Uh, here's a question for both of you. Are you looking forward to Hazer's Canaanite archive uh, being discovered? I sure am. Well, we, we can't presume that they had an archive. They might. They might not have. We don't know exactly what archival practices were done in the Levant. Uh, we, we, entire cities have been excavated at Levant without any uh, uh, discovery of an archive. So I think it's it's a little presumptuous to say that um, that a archive will be discovered at Hatsor. It might, but it might not. Now we've also found some um, um, archives in some unlikely places too, like uh, Tel Adrud had an archive that was discovered, uh, and and this 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 produced that 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 famous uh, Yahweh and Asherah. Uh, Ostriga. So we do find archives in some very unlikely places, and then we find them in, we don't find them in places where we do expect them. So archives are a little hit and miss in the Levant. Uh, I hope we find one in the Hatsor. More texts are always good. I love texts. I'm a text guy. I, I, I live for new texts. So I'm, I'm hoping they find one, but I'm not counting on it. All right, Michael, you have any thoughts as, as well or no? No, I mean, I'd love to find more archives. I mean, there's so many sites that we've not, I mean, I feel like there's just so many sites we haven't fully excavated or had the opportunity to, there's still just so much more to find. I mean, even most of Jerusalem can't be excavated because of, you know, political issues and people are living there, so. Oh, yeah. yeah. How difficult yeah, just is it? Just shovel on the Temple Mount and see what response you get. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> match what we could find there, but we can't, we can't even look. Although when when uh, when the um, when the Muslims decided to do the underground mosque at uh, on the Temple Mount, and they took all that debris and threw it into um, um, oh uh, the valley next door, you know there was a sifting project that came along afterwards that found some very interesting things in that in that debris. So, you know, sometimes there's accidents like this that do happen. You know, they found, like, a temple lintel there, and they found uh, Hasmonean coins there. So there is there is some interesting little finds that can come about through, say, accidental archaeology as well. All right. But if you intentionally go to the Temple Mount and you take your little spade and you turn a clod of dirt there, yeah, you're going to get stoned. <laughs> No one's going to be happy with you. <laughs> no comment. Um, all right. Here's uh, this question. It's basically, it's going to be two of them. So I'm going to show the first part and then the second part. Uh, question for Dr. Falk. If someone brought up uh, Christine Hayes or any notorious scholar 
uh, on religious studies? Should we rely on them as authorities on the Exodus or the flood? Or should we rely purely on actual scholars who are archaeologists or specialized on the time period of the archaeology on the particular with the archaeology on that particular period? Test all things. Hold fast to what's true. Don't don't rely on on on, on authorities. Don't rely on speakers. Don't rely on charismatic guys in costumes. Don't rely on me. I'm a fallen sinner. Test what I say. Test what everyone says. Hold fast to what's true. All right, Michael. Nothing else said. That's pretty good. So. All right. Another question, uh, Dr. Falk. I have heard some scholars uh, have, that some scholars have said that uh, there were most likely only ten, uh, three to ten thousand Jewish Jews in Egypt. Therefore, the Exodus seems unlikely. What do you think? Okay, I think that that's a really lowball number. Um, even for what we know about Avaris uh, and what's been said by Montred Beetock. Now, Montred Beetock has taken a very conservative approach to this, to the population of Avaris. He says there's between 10 and 50,000 people at Avaris. Um, but I think the demo, I think that he's not basing that on demographics. I think he's basing that more on, say, um, a sample size of particular buildings he's excavated. I think. Um, um, Semitic demographics, like we find at Lehun, seem to indicate that the population of Avaris was closer to 100,000. Okay. With that said, however, when the exodus is happening, it's not just the population of, of Avaris that's leaving. You've got a piece of Paramzis that's leaving. You've got a population that's being picked up at, at um, from the Wadi Tumalot, at like Sukkot, and uh, Pithom, they're picking up tens of thousands of people along the way as they're leaving. So while I think, say, that the numbers given in, say, uh, the census in the Exodus are um, too large, they're in, they're in, they're, they, are, they are being used in a way that we don't quite yet understand, I would place the, the population that came out of the Exodus in the hundreds of thousands. Now, I understand that I'm sort of the outlier here. I know most scholars in this field will, uh, even among biblical maximalists, even among early dates, you know, the early daters hold really fast to the literal reading of 1 Kings 6.1, but they don't hold to literally the uh, reading of the census in, in Exodus and Numbers either. Petrovich does. <laughs> does. I, I Brian asked him. Wood doesn't. <laughs> no, I asked Petrovich. I, I asked him an email once. He mm -hmm. said, "Yeah, yeah, I have no reason to deny the literal numbers." I'm like, "All right, all right." Yeah, that. Yeah, I, you can't support that by the um, by the archaeology there, and he knows that. He knows that. I don't. I, you know, I he that knows out. that. Well, here's the thing. You know, he just uh, Petrovich is is in his own little reality. He he, and it gets stranger and stranger as time goes on. You know, there's just some of the things that is that is that, is, that he has said has been just really in in like left field, like the whole angel DNA thing is just kind of really <laughs> out there. 
Neanderthal, but that that that's where we get Neanderthals. <laughs> yeah, that's that's literally what he but he gave a lecture on that at ETS twenty nineteen. Yep. Neanderthals are uh, are the Nephilim. Are the Nephilim, <laughs> and they're a combination of human and angel DNA. I was there at the ETS twenty nineteen. I didn't get to, to hear that, but it's interesting. <laughs> oh, it was one of the most interesting papers I've ever ever heard, and that's not a compliment. Wow. <laughs> there is this question uh, since you mentioned his name. Uh, what are the main things that you disagree with uh, um, with Brian Wood? Um, I, I disagree with most of what Bryant Wood says. Um, I disagree with his his view on the early Exodus date, of course, but I also disagree with his uh, ceramic retyping at Jericho. I think that's crazy. Um, I think his uh, explanations for the um, for Hatsor are just cuckoo for cocoa puffs. Um, there's just so much that Bryant Wood has has to do. To justify, you, you have to understand that Bryant Wood is all about the early date. That's his one shtick. He has nothing else. So for him, he, everything has to boil down to support or to prop up the early date hypothesis. And if it doesn't support that, then he has nothing else. See. He right. never published his work on on Jericho claiming that it should the destruction well, because, of course not he couldn't get it published yeah I mean no, that's that's one of the reasons why uh, was it spade and whatever a Bible in spade exists it's it's ABR uh, attempts uh, to publish their own work that's unpublishable mm -hmm. that's why they took over the NAS they took over the NAS to to take over the journal so that they could get their own stuff published because they found that whenever they submitted anything for peer review, it got laughed out of the, uh, out of the Academy. You know, uh, Thomas Schneider told me he had to peer review one of Petrovich's papers once. And, and he said it was so laughable. It wasn't even funny. All right. Uh, so here is this for IP from what I can remember, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. You believe that a lot of the Old Testament is orally passed down traditions that overall, uh, which has a main core. Um, well, I mean, I, I think that's hard to, to deny. I mean, stuff about Abraham and whatnot. I mean, that would probably be oral traditions that were handed down and then were eventually written down. Joshua Berman has got a really good book called Inconsistencies in the Torah, where he talks about, for example, Deuteronomy. Uh, but he says that actually corresponds to like Hittite treaties that would date to end of late Bronze Age time. And so you could argue that a lot of texts were being written around that time in that sort of fashion, as a lot of texts are date to that time. And uh, using his work and Benjamin Kilcher's work, you can actually make a good argument for a lot of the Pentateuch having been written before that. So that's something I'm sort of researching right now on and off. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's hard to deny there, there's got to be aspects of oral traditions that were uh, handed down over generations and whatnot. And there's a lot of good data that's come out recently on the reliability of oral traditions for several generations. I mean, it, it, we're so much infused in a modern Western culture, we don't understand how oral cultures would work, but they were actually, they're actually quite good at preserving traditions over several generations. 
And I would mostly agree with that. Um, one of the things we do find with oral traditions is uh, while it does preserve some things, other things change. And this is actually one of the really interesting things about oral tradition is while it tends to preserve a lot of detail, what happens is you start getting vocabulary substituted. Mo vocabulary gets modernized as the language modernizes. So when we see this in Genesis, particularly, we see this because, you know, um, Abraham goes and talks to the Pharaoh. That's updated terminology. Mm -hmm. The term Pharaoh didn't exist prior to the reign of Tutmosis III, at least not as a, as a title for the king. So we do see that this, this retrojection of vocabulary. But when we, and then that's what one of the things about oral tradition that's so interesting is it updates its, the, the, the vocabulary, the syntax, the language updates over time while the details remain static. So we can tell from that that, say, Genesis has been passed down by oral tradition. But at the same time, this also tells us that Exodus was written down. Because what we find in Exodus is the, is, is the vocabulary and the syntax becoming ossified. It becomes static, frozen in time. You get a snapshot of, of Egyptian vocabulary and Egyptian turns of phrase, and Egyptian names that, that, that just don't become updated. So that same argument that shows the orality of, say, Genesis, shows the graphemic written-down nature of Exodus and the rest of the Torah. Hmm. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. But this has only come out in, like, the last 10 years, where we're starting to see proper research done as to how oral tradition changes. All right. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and take two more questions. One of them is a super chat again. Um, and um, um, let's see. We'll take the first one. Well, actually, we'll, we'll do the super chat, and then we'll, we'll take the last question from there. Um, this one is directed for IP, but Dr. Falk, I'm pretty sure you have some thoughts about it. Um, it says, question for IP. You do know Francesca Estabracopoulou said that David that the David inscription is fake, so IP is lying, and even if it was real, it actually <laughs> says Kettle on the house. Does she actually think it's fake? I mean, she's an actual <laughs> biblical scholar. I, I, no, I'm not as familiar with her. I have seen some of her interviews. But I, yeah, she thinks it's. If, does she think it's fake, really? <laughs> I mean, like, wow, that would be kind of like a fringe view. I mean, like, that'd be very fringe. Yeah, I would be. If, if she does, wow. I, I've like, heard. I I've heard the latter. The latter that it actually says kettle, and I don't know what 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 kettle would be doing in <laughs> the house of kettle would be doing in a royal inscription. I mean, you can just tell by, from the epigraphy of that inscription that it was a royal monument. It is one of the cleanest, most pristine uh, stone inscriptions that you find in the ancient Near East. And if, 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 if the Tel Dan inscription had not been found in C2, which means on a dig, in the ground, everyone would think it's a fake because it's so beautiful. 
It's so pristine. It's so clear. But that also tells you that this was a very important inscription at the time, an incredibly important inscription, that they would take the time to do it with such beauty and precision. You know, the surface is incredibly well polished. You would not normally find that on a, on a say, just a, you know, lay inscription. So Apparently, yeah, she does doubt the authenticity. Uh, oh, then, then maybe, she's out to lunch here. She, if she, she does... From what I'm seeing, she might not think it actually mentions David. Well, I know she doesn't men I know she thinks it doesn't mention David. I know I I've heard the, the House of Kettles <laughs> bothers this. <laughs> you know, um Fairman had an ex had a saying once, you know, a translation that doesn't make sense is nonsense. Okay. <laughs> House of Kettle doesn't make sense. <laughs> You know, even um, if you could make that claim, it just is, is, is just sounds cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, um, it's cracker-jacked. I've, <laughs> I've heard some of the things that she has said, and I think uh, she was in the BBC uh, interview with a bunch of different scholars from different uh, backgrounds. Oh, yeah, Muslims BBC and loves those types. Right, like a bunch of different people, and and she was asked if she believed Moses existed, David, and all those people, and obviously she said that she didn't think they did. Of course, she doesn't. But whenever she was asked if Jesus existed, she was kind of like, eh, like she 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 doubted. Like it wasn't like she said no, but she was kind of like, uh, like you know, like she has some doubt. So, in some sense, I I, I don't know. I don't know anything about Here, her scholarship. I, I, I just pull up her book. Things. Here's what she says in her book on page eighty six. As such, this fragmentary text cannot bear the weight of arguments heaped upon it concerning the historicity of the early monarchy. Moreover, even if the inscription is best interpreted as referencing to the House of David, it testifies neither to the historicity of David nor to the coexistence of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah in the 9th century BCE. Rather, the designation House of David may refer simply to the ruling family of a small fortified settlement of Jerusalem and its dependent villages, whose founder was believed to be the name David or Beloved. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that is just minimalist claptrap. I mean, it, it's, it's David means trap. Beloved. I mean, it does, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. House she of Beloved? That makes I as mean, much sense is, as House of the Kettle. I mean, it's just... <laughs> this is what we were talking about earlier, that like, it, it's just like, the Bible's just not judged with the the same historical criteria you would judge ancient works. You have a no. clear inscription that mentions David and some minimalists are even like, nope, nope, that doesn't even- It's give not even on a break. Doesn't... It's not even on a It's not even on a break in the text. You no. know, it's, it's, it's right in the middle. <laughs> yeah, it's like- And, and this, just, and this is why anything. these scholars are, are so derided now in Israel. You know, this is why they've lost their credibility. They only have credibility in the West. Where we, where the Western scholars still have this love affair with skepticism, hmm. you know, with a documentary hypothesis, with biblical minimalism, you know, they're cavorting with these 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 higher critical theories, and they don't care about the data anymore. They don't care about the evidence anymore. It's all about keeping the status quo of the theory alive. 
Yeah, it's at this point. I mean, like, I don't know how much more. Like, what what do you want to prove that David was an historical figure? We have a pretty clear inscription, but for some, that's just not even good enough. And yeah, it's like I, I give up. Like, it's like, come on, you're not you're not being fair with these texts. It's being disingenuous about evidence. It's about it's, it's disingenuous questions. It's disingenuous standards of evidence. It's like you can give them direct evidence, and they'll still go. Yeah, I don't accept the direct evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what would you expect? What, what will you accept? It's like... <laughs> I'm coming here. It says, yeah. Uh, and then they go and put the Hebrew there. I, I don't know how to write uh, read Hebrew. If you, if you were to put it on Greek, maybe. Yeah. House yeah. of David. Oh, House gotcha. of David is what it says. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's saying it's in reference to a dynasty, the name of in reference to the person or monarch founder of the dynasty. She's trying to postulate a more ad hoc than necessary. Occam's Razor eliminates this. Um, so yeah, but I did have the another question. Here makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Shocking, a plain reading. <gasps> Anyway, um, so I have a question here from uh, Marcy Powell, Powell uh, and she's asking, would you, will the plagues have affected Egypt in any way that would, uh, would have left anything behind? Probably, for, in most cases, no. Okay, in most cases, no. And part of the reason why was that Egypt had been uh, racked from time to time by plague. Okay, plagues were not uncommon in Egypt. They happened fairly frequently. What made this one so particular was its, its severity. But what it, these plagues also affected to were things that were ephemeral in nature. Wipes out the barley crop. Okay? Does not touch the wheat. Now, that's really, really important for, for Egypt because most people in Egypt ate wheat. They didn't eat barley. It's, it's sort of the reverse of what you find in the Levant. In, in the Levant, most people ate barley and not wheat because wheat crop wasn't, a wasn't um, reliable in the Levant, which is why you had a lot of blindness in Israel. It's because barley lacks the vitamin A. But in Egypt, most people ate wheat. Even the poorest people ate wheat because it was just so plentiful. But barley had one very, very important function in Egypt that couldn't be replaced, which was the manufacture of beer. And the manufacture of beer in Egypt was used as a water purification device. So when you had the wiping out of the barley crop, that was a catastrophe of water purification, not a catastrophe of starvation. Hmm. So a lot of people got really, really sick on the water. Very, very sick. And this is where you could have had, had, had other things like the boils and the flies and, and all of these things. But it was part of plague outbreak in Egypt. Now, we do find one plague that seems to have lasted beyond the plagues, which was the destruction of the trees. Okay, and the 
the destruction of when the locusts come and they eat off the bark of all the trees and all the leaves, the trees die. At that point, you start seeing a tree shortage in Egypt. Acacia is no longer found as a common resource in Egypt. Egypt has to start uh, importing wood at that point. We find this in, say, um, say you know, in the 20th dynasty where they're taking the last resources of trees to make coffins. But after that, they're starting to have to import wood and steal each other's coffins. And we find this especially at the end of Dynasty 20, beginning of Dynasty 21, where coffins are being reused. Because there's no wood to make new coffins. So uh, you've got a lot of people stealing Uncle Joe's coffin, redecorating it, and recycling it. Because there's no more wood to make coffins. So we do see this 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 residual effect because because everything else in it, of the plagues can be recovered in one one year, more or less. Next year, your 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 um your barley cop will will have have re recovered. You know your cattle will breed new cattle in the following year. You'll recover over time from any of those plagues. The one thing that doesn't recover is silviculture. Trees take generations to recover. And they never actually do recover in Egypt. You know, clear, uh, you know, forestry is that way. You, you, you may strip, uh, um, strip log a, a mountainside, but unless you replant that immediately, it's just going to defoliate and denude the entire uh, side of the mountain. This is why selective logging today is a more common practice. It's for that reason. It's because trees and forests take generations to recover. And trees in Egypt never did recover from that. Do you have any thoughts, uh, Michael? No, I mean, Dr. Falk is right. There's just not a lot of evidence. The place wouldn't leave behind evidence with last generations beyond the tree issue, which we do have evidence for. Uh, but Beyond that, I mean, I I remember Kenneth Kitchen mentioning uh, the the text called the Instruction of uh, of Ippawar. Mm -hmm. He says it may may be mentioning similar plagues. The problem though is that Ippawar is hard to really interpret because it's very poetic. So there could be some similarities there, if anything. We do mm -hmm. find similar uh, events mentioned in the Middle Kingdom wisdom literature. But all of this, this literature dates firmly to the 12th dynasty, and, and it had a political end. It was ex eventu prophecy. It was prophecy written after the fact. And, and even in those cases, you know, they're talking about more serious than normal events that occurred as a result of the annual inundation, the flood that occurred every year in Egypt. So all of these plagues came along, for the most part, with the inundation. Like the supposed, you know, uh, the, the water turning to blood. Well, that's not a red blood. That's the black blood of the, of, the not, of the silt, the black silt that's carried down normally with, with the Nile. But what's unusual about, um, say, the, um, the, the, the Exodus account of this is it's not just in the river. 
it's also in the wine jugs and in the wooden vessels and the stone vessels and and everywhere where you'd find their normal water for purification uh, processes. Your typical, your poor, your your, your well-to-do Egyptian didn't drink from the river. He drank beer. Your poor Egyptian drank from wells. The desperate drank from the river. Uh, there's a very interesting thing about in, in, in Ipaware where it talks about the water turning to blood. Um, and, and yet they still drank from the river. And I think that's that latter part of Ipaware that's really interesting. It's really, really interesting and really compelling because what it does is it's, it's, it's showing that Ipaware is trying to show you that the whole social order is turned on its head. Abnormal things are happening. The abnormal thing is not that it turned to blood. The abnormal thing is they're drinking from the river. They're still drinking that slop. Mm. That's the abnormalness that's being shown in Ipaware. But I think what the biblical text and what God is doing with the plagues is he's, he's leveraging those particular um, texts, those prophetic texts of the Middle Kingdom that have become part of the cultural myth milieu of Egypt and he's using Egypt's own myth against them their own cultural understanding against them uh, one of the very more interesting texts is the text of, of, of Nefertiti and what, what, what makes Nefertiti so interesting is it reports similar say plagues but it's a clearly a middle kingdom text it's a 12th dynasty text but we also find interesting that it's copied a lot at two particular times in Egyptian history. We got, we got a, like 20 copies of, of Nefertiti. But we find that they date to two particular periods of time. The first period of time where we get lots of copies is at the time of the beginning of Dynasty 18. Because one, one of the things about Nefertiti is it talks about the, the triumphant new... Uh, uh, a conqueror who who sets the world right from the uh, uh, Asiatic oppression, and his name is Ameni. Well, many Egyptians at the beginning of Dynasty 18 thought Akhmosa the first was this Ameni that was being prophesied in Nefertiti. But it also talks about, say, the plagues and all this, and the other cache of of Nefertiti documents we find happens in Dynasty 19 during the reign of Ramses II. It's very interesting because there's a renewed interest in these documents at right at that time as the Egyptians are trying to make sense of all of this that's happening around them. They don't have, you know, the Israelites don't have the, the, the Torah, but neither do the Egyptians. They're using their own cultures to make sense of all this. And the Egyptians have Nefertiti, they have Ipuware, they have the wisdom texts, they have uh, Papyrus Westcar talking about water magic and, and what that means for, for, for Egyptians. Okay. And I think what God is doing is using that cultural information to manipulate Egyptian society. Right. Um, uh, Michael, do you have any thoughts about that? No. no. 
a lot <laughs> that was really good. So, yeah. All right. So uh, with that, I think um, I'm gonna uh, have you guys give your final thoughts uh, about the whole conversation uh, for people to maybe find some resources or anything like that. Um, with that, maybe you can answer this one. It says, what are IPs in Dr. Falk's top five books on the Exodus or Old Testament? Um, and so you can give your final thoughts each and um, we'll uh, I think there. we'll probably uh, have a lot of the same books here. Probably. Uh, so, I mean, On the Reliability of the Old Testament by Kenneth Kitchen. I would agree with that. Standard. Um, this book here, did I not bring Israel out of Egypt, another good book. Uh, Dr. Falk's book, um, yeah, oh, yeah. Ark in its Egyptian Context, is, of course, really good. Uh, Hoffmeyer, Israel and Egypt is pretty good. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there as well. Um, I can't think of another one. Uh, I can think of one. Yeah, uh, behind the Scenes of the Old Testament. Uh, yeah, I got that one. That's too. a real good one, too. Uh, in fact, I think that would be a great beginner source uh, to anyone who wants to get into uh, the history of the Old Testament from, a, say, a more biblical maximalist point of view. Yeah. Um, and what, yes, and as a course, about? read the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the source. Read the text. Yeah. We need more uh, people was, reading the original text. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you if you want to talk a little bit about your project and that you're gonna the, the book you're going to be writing in the future for those who might not know. Okay, well, it. I am trying to get some funding to together to take a sabbatical from my uh, my manual labor job to uh, write a book on the plagues of Egypt. What did the plagues of Egypt mean to the Egyptians? Because Egyptian texts give us this uh, a, a large chunk of context that has never been adequately explored in academic or lay literature. So it'd be written in a way sort of like my book on the Ark of the Covenant, which is in a style that's approachable by both, say, an expert and a non-expert alike. All right. And with that, um, um, do either one of you have any final thoughts that you want to leave the audience with? It's been uh, great working with Michael. Yeah, we're going to redo <laughs> the uh, uh, Exodus documentary for my channel, uh, probably from March, and put it back up there, and then we'll do a video on Conquest as well. Are you guys going to be working together on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you, I think we've become guys... pretty, pretty good friends out of this. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm glad. Um, it's really good. Um, I was going to ask you if you guys are interested. Maybe in the future we can have a conversation about the, the, um, um, I guess you know all the plagues and all that stuff. Uh, I don't know if you guys will be interested on that, but we can talk about that later. So yeah, okay. or the House of Kettle as well, if you want. Yep, the House of Kettle. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, with that, thank you everybody for being here. Uh, both of you, Michael, Doctor Falk, thank you so much for. Um, giving us your time to do this and i'm sure that this is going to be helpful to other people uh if you guys thought that this was um helpful to you um you can go ahead and share it with other individuals um and and like it and make sure that you follow both michael and dr folk and uh thank you so much uh, all of you guys for being here tonight and we'll see you guys later